Hello, and welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop Podcast, your one stop for co-op news and reviews. This week, Jason Perez is here to entertain you with some more shelf stories. Yo, my peoples, what's up? Welcome back to Shell Stories, the channel that tells tales from games, books, and life. And also, welcome to the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. I am your host, Jason. Thank you so, so much for stopping by for this industry nuts and bolts. I'm loving uh, going into deeper conversations with folks who really know what they're talking about. I've done a couple earlier in the year talking about um, freelance design and, you know, getting into the nuts and bolts of development of games, you know, stuff that you don't normally hear on podcasts, hopefully. And I, I really hope that everybody is coming along for the ride for this industry nuts and bolts, uh, really enjoying it so far. I have two really brilliant people when it comes to gaming here with me today. I have been blessed to get to know them, to get to talk to them, uh, glean their insights, follow their Twitters, which is really where I, I find a lot about this stuff. <laughs> Especially um, this person to my right as I'm speaking. Uh, she is the community manager at Pandasaurus Games and an all-around awesome person. And uh, the inspiration for this came way back when, uh, you know, giving knowledge bombs on Twitter. So I had to have this person on the show. Finally glad to have make it happen. She is Danny Lowe. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, I know it, it'd been a while. <laughs> you caught me between moves, between conventions. Right. <laughs> the phone was very, very busy. But I mean, the, the issues persist. <laughs> it's not like it goes away. <laughs> you know, I mean, this stuff keep on working the whole time. So it's no, it's fine. Totally fine. Um, at least we're, we're getting a chance to talk now, which is great. Uh, mm -hmm. And also to my bottom, uh, uh, down below uh, on the Zoom call, if you're listening to the podcast, take my word for it. Uh, he is has been on the show before. And we have done kind of industry nuts and bolts before talking about how Kickstarters work and, you know, the state of the industry, that kind of thing. So I wanted to have this man back on because I know there's insights and I know there's been development uh, and perceptions and all that kind of thing. He is from Druid City Games. Uh, he is Mr. James Hudson. Welcome back to the show. What up, y'all? How's it going? With a fresh mohawk cut, looking pretty for the podcast. I can't, very good. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you're going to put me on camera. I got to get it shaving up. Oh, but uh, you said there would be two intelligent people here, but there's only really one, Danny. When you, <laughs> two out of three is not bad. Sure, you know? sure. <laughs> the record of success speaks for itself. I, I have no false humility here, my friend. <laughs> uh, thank you for letting me uh, come on and talk about this. This is this is the kind of stuff that's fun to talk about because um, I, I feel like the more that people learn about this, hopefully the less you know ridiculous comments we get thrown at other mm. creators and things. You know, and even if it just creates ambassadors in the comment sections, man. You know, I know Danny can speak to this right now because uh, she's running the Kickstarter as we speak. Uh, it it wears us out. It's exhausting. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things I wanted to do with this nuts and bolts segment is, you know, open up the hood. I mean, these people are very open to talk about this stuff. And it's almost like, you know, uh, uh, a, a, in a desert, you know, it's like thirsty. Oh, my God, someone finally is going to talk about this. This is something that because, you know, I feel like consumers can be at a little bit of a I don't want to talk junk about consumers. But I mean, I think there's some of them, let's say that uh, coming out from a little bit of a magical thinking place. Uh, so I really want to, uh, you know, give as much knowledge as possible. But first, uh, we are going to do what we are here to do, which is sell, sell, sell games. Uh, so uh, the re one of the reasons I want to have James Hudson on the show in particular, I had the privilege at PAX Unplugged to demo Title Blade 2, 
So I have a, a playthrough of Tidal Blades, the original Tidal Blades, on the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. I really enjoyed it. Uh, it is a Euro-style um, game with, uh, I mean, all the all the gamer terms, right? <laughs> Worker placement and card play and all that kind of stuff. It's a you know kind of a classic Euro with a uh, interesting theme. You know, very a much well-developed world of Tidal Blades. Uh, Tidal Blade Two takes that world and puts it in a completely different um, form. And around when the episode, we are not really sure when the Kickstarter is launching officially, but around then we're going to get Tidal Blades 2. So uh, we are going to do some sell, sell, sell before we get into Industry Nuts and Bolts. So hit, hit him with some knowledge, James. <laughs> yeah, Tidal Blades 2 is an adventure dungeon crawl style narrative based campaign game. And uh, one of the things that we really are proud of in the game is there's this grid system and the grid system you're taking card you're managing your cards and there's a deck kind of almost a little a little deck building to it but it's just got this really sweet combo system that um i really think if you enjoy euro games that part of the game is really going to feel combo tastic right card management playing those things down but then all that drives all your actions and board and there's tons of player interaction because it is a co-op so you're working together to try to defeat the stuff but uh, and the cherry on top to me is the narrative. The narrative, this narrative does not belong in board games. It belongs on Netflix. It belongs in, in a video game, whatever, right? Like it, the narrative that the Cuddingtons and the Eisners and everybody who's worked on it have been able to put together. Um, when I read the narrative arc of where the campaign was going, I mean, there was a couple points I teared up. I'm like, <laughs> Mm. this is good this is so mm-hmm. good now i'm obviously in love with these characters probably a little bit more than everybody else but um it's just it's the culmination of like every angle of this thing coming together to make a really great game and then uh i, I would be remiss not to mention that the campaign is also going to include title blades the rpg uh mm. which we have partnered with monty cook games and sean and germain authored the entire thing monty cook being a veteran of dungeons and dragons anybody who's played old school dungeons and dragons is going to know that name that's right monty cook uh and worked there uh but they now have a cypher system which we loved and we thought was perfect for uh the title blades world and it's amazing even if you're not really into rpgs i think this core book's worth having because there's deep lore and the cuttington's they drew so much art. The, the team at Monty Cook Games was just like, this is going to ruin all of our fans for every core book we put out in the future. Because <laughs> there's so much art in here. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's all things Title Blades all the time. All right. No. Uh, so, uh, you know, Axel and Cayman and the characters mm-hmm. that were in the first game are in the second game. So there's some carryover there. Uh, the first game depicts like training for the championship. Now we're actually going to be champions and, and go on. Uh, so the, the, the narrative threads of their work, obviously, I only played a tutorial, so I don't know. I'm going to take your word for it on how much I'm going to tear up playing this game. Uh, so that what I will say, and I've said this in the preview pod we did, uh, it's a title Blaze 2 is a game where I play the demo and I did cool things in the demo. And that never happens. You know, in a demo, it's usually like, okay, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, here you go, swing a sword and everything like that. Uh, here, I was using that grid card system to do, you know, triple damage which on top of what I would normally do right from Jump Street. And that is a very, very exciting thing to be able to do something like that in an in accessible package. And then I could see the, the complexity arcing from there as you get better cards. So, I mean, we're going to do the best we can to kind of feature it and, you know, talk about it. So it'll, it'll the Kickstarter link 
will, or the crowdfunding link, I should say, uh, let's be general about this, uh, will be in the show notes. I'm not exactly sure when the launch is, but it'll be pretty soon after this podcast. Yeah, you can put the Notify Me page on there so you can go follow when it does launch. And, you know, Jason, one of the things that we really have tried really hard to do with the game design of the different campaigns is to make sure that the campaign sessions never feel samey. So you're not just going to go clear the board every time, right? Kill all the stuff on the board. That, that in dungeon crawls gets so old so quickly. Um, I think people are going to be really, really surprised when they get six, seven, eight se- sessions in. They're just going to want to keep playing because every time you flip that page and you read the next scenario, you're like, we're going to be doing what? That's yeah, different stuff. Like Please, different so stuff. I don't need more killing the bosses. No, thank you. Or like beating the threat timer or whatever the whatever else is going on uh very cool so no title blaze 2 we're definitely looking forward to it uh so we go we turn to pandasaurus we turn to danny who is consistently uh you know hyping games for panda uh and a lot of games that you know because we're a solo cooperative games podcast and solo you know uh, the dinosaur games you know dinosaur world mm-hmm. is i think we would know that uh the loop we've we featured a couple of times here and i have a playthrough coming up on the one stop co-op shop uh, uh danny is showing off the loop <laughs> on the uh on the board but panda has all sorts of stuff as a very very wide ranging publishing house uh so we're coming off as we're recording this it, it, we, we won't be on uh the, the campaign will be over by the time we release this episode uh but there's always campaigns so maybe you can kind of sum up what panda has coming forward uh in the next little while yeah so at this moment right now recording we're just finishing up the skate summer kickstarter campaign which is kind of like the tony hawk video games becoming a board game Um, We will have a late pledge manager. Uh, I don't know when that'll launch. It's always after the campaign. Mm -hmm. Um, It'll be open for question amount amount of weeks. (laughs) Um, But that'll be available. If you didn't check out the campaign, that's an option for you to get all the Kickstarter goodies still. So Um, actually, let me ask a question about late pledges. Is late pledges like a essential part of Kickstarter campaign? Is that do people really come in and is it like a thing that must happen in order to, you know, make a little bit of margin? Or is that like we have to do it? And, you know, like how does that late pledges work out? Yeah. (laughs) It so it is a lot of extra work, right? Because you've you've spent your whole time hyping up the campaign and unlocking stretch goals and whatever. You've got your your core group of backers. However, for myriad reasons, right? People missed the campaign. They didn't hear about it, whatever. They're so excited to get this game and there's FOMO, right? They don't want to miss out mm. on, all the, on all the stretch goals. For Dino World, I think we had 30% of our entire print run come from late pledges. And we had wow. 10,000 backers just on the campaign while it was live. So it's a pretty sizable portion of people who you know, sometimes it's it's their budget as well, right? The late pledges allow them to pay a month or two after the campaign. So now they've had time to save up and reallocate their budget. Um, so for whatever reason, they're just as valuable as our backers. Wow. Um, yeah. Has that been your experience, James, with the late pledges? Absolutely. When uh, she said 30%, I was already in my head somewhere, usually in the range of 30 to 40% typically. Mm-hmm comes in now we keep our le- our pledge manager open a really long time like um i keep mine open until we're ready to hit the print button at the factory so that could be six seven months sometimes you know um but yeah it just it's it's just a really helpful way to allow people to have a lot of flexibility with when they can when they can pay for things mm-hmm. um it we also collect our shipping vat and taxes through our pledge managers so um mm-hmm. because kickstarter 
I'm not sure about GameFound and other platforms, but they don't allow us to collect that and taxes through that system. So we, you know, we if you don't run a pledge manager and you ship things to the EU and the UK, you've got to figure something out to collect those taxes. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's a it's a really handy tool. Yeah. Yeah. So we're gonna get it. Yeah. <laughs> especially if your campaign has add-ons or optional purchases, this allows time for people to really uh dwell over which items they want and increase their pledge or order more copies for their friends. Um, And since we have to open the pledge manager, like James said, to collect shipping and taxes and all that, we might as well open it to everyone just to, you know, let more people onto the boat, Mm. so to speak. That was very cool. I mean, I like pledges. I always wondered, you know, it's like it's something that they they just have to do, but it sounds like it's very much wrapped in. Uh, So, you know, uh, so the skating game, the Tony Hawk, the board game is going to be, you know, I, and if it is, you know, we'll have a link in the show notes so people can kind of follow up there. Uh, and also you have something else coming up. You always have yeah. something. Coming up. <laughs> we always have something <laughs> brewing. Um, in April, not Kickstarter, direct to retail, we're releasing Skull Canyon Ski Fest. I don't have a sample on my, my wall behind me, but this is essentially another sports game, skiing instead of skateboarding. But I describe it as ticket to ride meets parks in that you are collecting sets of cards to ski down different slopes. Um, And at the end of the round, uh, you're going to be taking actions, parks or Takedo style, kind of leapfrogging over each other Mm -hmm. in the ski village. And that'll give you actions to really prepare you for the next round. Mm -hmm. However, what sets it apart and makes it kind of a step above family-friendly games is that there's a whole area control aspect. As you ski a run, a black diamond, if you're the first person to do that, you get to place one of your score markers on the, the run track. And that's uh, area control majority at the end of the game. Mm. But people can take it from you if they play more cards in their set. So it's just like stacking on top of each other and making things more expensive, uh, diminishing returns as the easy, fewer point providing runs become more and more expensive. It's a lot of decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty fun. I thought you meant the like the slope itself was going to be area controlled. So like you could put st- junk in the way of the skiers. <laughs> kind of. There is a Yeti. I don't know if you saw my beautiful rendition on Twitter. But at PAX, I brought a prototype, a, a printer sample. So. Is that what that Yeti was? I know. I- <laughs> yes. It was for this game. It was a, a we call it a white box. So <clears throat> not all of the components have the final artwork on that. So the, the plastics, the meeples and whatnot were completely white and I had to Sharpie player colors onto them. But the Yeti just kind of looked like a blob because it will have the artwork on it finally. So I drew a stick figure Yeti that was very terrifying, mm. very accurate. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't. <laughs> Fantastic. So we have some games coming up. Uh, I, mean, I did not get a chance to demo at, at PAX any of the Panda games, but you know, Title Blades 2, I did. And fantastic. Uh, I think that I'm looking forward to, and Panda's just solid. I mean, just, you know, constant solid releases, you know, depending on your, you know, family-ish, like it, I think it's like family vibe. You know, mm-hmm. there's, it's, it's gamers games, but I think that you guys have, you guys have nailed kind of that family vibe, if, that, if that's a good way to put it. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Like they're, I, I describe them as approachable and yeah. unique. So like anyone can learn um, and our, our work kind of seals the deal, I'd say. Mm-hmm. 
All right, cool. Uh, so we have done the sell, sell, sell. Uh, that, we're done. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Uh, now we are going to get into industry nuts and bolts. And uh, the inspiration for me reaching out to Danny all those uh, months ago, uh, and we'll finally get to talk about it. And I'm really eager to talk about it because it's one of those things we're living a goldfish culture. It's like, okay, when it's there, it's there. And then like five seconds when it's like not as big a problem, we forget. And it's just like, we move on. But I don't want to forget this because this could happen again. And I want to really know like what happened and where we are moving forward. And that's with shipping and prices. So then shipping in particular, because, you know, shipping just, you know, just blew up. <laughs> Poor James. I remember seeing the the constant updates of like, okay, how much was this container? How much is this container? Especially as 2020 hit. Uh, and so uh, you did a, a tweet thread and, you know, maybe kind of jump off of there, like where we were in 2020. I believe the word was borked that you used. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start there, like just review what happened and then we can kind of, you know, go from there in terms of our understanding of how shipping it worked out for us in 2020 and beyond? Mm. Um, well, the world ground to a halt in 2020, <laughs> as we all recall. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of new policies put in place by a lot of companies as we transition to remote or shut down completely in some cases, put on a, put on a pause, whatever. Um, as those lingering effects moved into 2021 last year um working conditions the shipments like where the countries that were ordering things the countries that were manufacturing things all of this in about this time last year uh culminated in the shipping crisis right that's that's a short story um yeah it was weird because like with the ships like you know um Usually, you know, in a normal times, your know, ships are going back and forth, you know, this one's buying, this one's selling kind of stuff. And then when the shipping crisis hit, it was like, you know, full containers were going here and then empty containers were going here. And it was just like this. I mean, it didn't just slow down. Right. It was just this uneven kind of thing and just it just didn't make any sense for people and just hit this you know massive skid i mean i don't i know i'm i'm not really like an economist shipping person but i like just recognizing like one of the really big things is in america we consume so much Mm -hmm. right all these containers of stuff were coming to us especially since people were staying at home and they were consuming more goods because they were staying home and we had empty containers typically that stuff would export back out to china and some of the other places that produce but they weren't, they were just sitting here empty. Well, boats aren't going to take empty containers back, right? That don't make any money that way. And so uh, then you had container, actual container shortages and you had uh, the COVID stuff that impacted port workers. So they couldn't unload the boats as fast. So boats were backed up at ports for months and they still are in some cases. So it, it was, it wasn't just like one thing. It was right. every single aspect of the chain got affected. And mm-hmm. it yeah. just made the price per container, I mean, in, in at least for us. <laughs> like I remember reading one thing of like, okay, the, there were a lot of boats that were kind of commandeered for PPE to send them all around the world. So like you had ships going to places where they would never usually go and place and, you know, and they had nothing to put back on the boat. So it's like you send these boats to these places and drop off essential medical equipment and nothing went back. So it's like, okay, they're taking these securitist routes and like just the whole thing was just like crazy. And it ended up with the shipping container debacle. 
Like, is mm-hmm. there, I mean, I think there's no other way to put it than a debacle, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's yeah, like the, the world was playing dominoes and losing terribly, <laughs> knocking them all down. Um, to speak from my experiences, right? We had, we had the dino, Dinosaur World Kickstarter to fulfill. Now, we printed the games in December and January so that right after Chinese New Year, we could put them on a container, ship them so that we could, you know, have them in the U.S. in June. It was a perfect plan. It's great. <laughs> Flawless. <laughs> um, except not really. <laughs> um, because one, so we printed the games. That, that wasn't affected by any paper shortages or cardboard shortages or plastic. There was no shortage problem at that point for us. So we printed the games as normal, but then the container shortage mm-hmm. lined up with that. So our printed games sat for a month waiting for containers and everyone was having the same experience. So as soon as we got offered a container, we snatched it up. But this meant that our our games, our Kickstarter games were shipping at different times. So we'd have like a container of Dino World, a container of Rar and Right, the expansions. Oh, the leftover mm. Dino World. <laughs> So we had like four shipments in transit at different times. And of course we can't start fulfilling the campaign until they all arrive. Um, so that was, that was like spring for us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think at that, at that point, James, that's when you're doing your updates about like, well, we got offered this much or. Same thing, right. Like, yeah. And then if you missed it or you delayed answering, Hey, I'll take that $27,000 container. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which how much did it normally update- cost? Less Normally, well, in the in in the pre times, in the before yeah. times, um, you know, five anywhere from five to seven thousand dollars would kind of be a, a a range. So you're talking five six x, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes seven x, depending on the different parts of the uh, of the of time. But yeah, I mean, if you waited two or three days, that quote would change, or um, you would get outbid for the spot on a boat. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, like Danny was saying, like you're like, hey, I need three containers to ship this product well we've got you one do you mm-hmm. want it and if there was yeah you you just had to say yes like you just we just had to start saying yes you didn't have a choice wow mm-hmm. i mm-hmm. i heard people paying upwards of thirty thousand for a single container and you know for smaller publishers those super indie groups they started talking to each other and seeing how they can consolidate and share containers because there is no way there, that their products would be prioritized to get out the factory that also leads to a different domino in that the factories were so backed up full of product they produced and not printed that they were like warning us that they could potentially not be able to print games because they had nowhere to put them. <laughs> um, are you, are they charging you for that um, storage? Um, I don't think our factory did, but they sure do in the docks of LA where they're stuck once oh. they finally arrive. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. That, that's the next domino. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I'm jumping the gun there. <laughs> no, no, that's fine. Um, okay. Once it's on a boat, it's pretty reliable. The ships besides Evergreen <laughs> don't typically have, have issues. But don't take that. Um, I'll tell that to Chris Seslick at uh, Osmati Games. At one point, I think an entire container of one, one deck da- galaxy had disappeared for like six months. Oh, and then yeah. magically reappeared. So we saw, <laughs> so that that story ended okay. But like I just remember the uh, him t- tweeting the picture of like a boat, you know, like that or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, oops. So. Knock on wood. <laughs> Knock, Knock on wood. wood. Uh, okay. So then, I mean, talk a little bit about like okay. I mean, those are numbers, right? To us, us normies, we don't know. Like we don't know what the margins are. 
for smaller publishers, mid-sized publishers. And we don't have to get into the like actual numbers is that it's not that, that appropriate, but just a, a ballpark of like, when you go 7X to pay for a container and you have all these extra costs with the shipping, does that just wipe away margin? Are you eating into uh, like, you know, like the rainy day fund? Like, is it like, you know, one year of no profit? Like what is, ha- like, tell us about what's happening. I think, I think there's, there's, there's several things to discuss about this part of it. Right. It, it, all of that applies. Yes. Because um, margin just gets eat up and it's gone to the point that uh, unfortunately, like for us, we had Wonderland's war, which was about a 14 container project that launched in the before times or right at the, at the start of COVID when we were basing our ocean freight off that five to $7,000 container and they all shipped at 26 or 28 on average, right? So that amount of money has to be made up somewhere. Um, and, you know, we tried to, we tried promos uh, to sell some promos and that helped a little bit, but it definitely did not cover the shortfall of that mm. shipping. And so like, you know, most publishers, when they're building out their PLs, their profit and loss uh, framework for their project, Ocean Freight, it's typically part of your cog, right? It's it's built into that part of the um, the equation. What's a cog? Cost, uh, of goods. cost of goods. Okay, look at this. We're learning. <laughs> yeah, and so you know when you're when you're building this out, you're like, cool. Um, you know, most businesses I think try to shoot for a thirty percent profit margin, right? That that's a nice healthy profit margin that lets you pay your employees and pay all your pay all your partners, and then have enough money left over to work on your next project, right? And so when you lay out your PL and you and you plug that in and you you that that's what sets your prices for what you have to offer on the Kickstarter, right? Well, what's happening now, and, and I think I think consumers are seeing this, is it like, man, the shipping's so much higher now. And, well, that's because in the past we could subsidize that shipping uh, because we could take some money out of margin, right? And bring that shipping cost down where it was more palatable. Mm. We're not all, we don't have that anymore because all of our margin is gone to pay because the ocean containers have not come down yet. And even if they do come down, no one expects them to ever go back to five to seven thousand dollars again. It's, you know, I've heard anywhere from twelve to fifteen thousand dollars is probably going to be the new norm. Whenever that, whenever the shipping gods bless us with this reduction of price, uh, but it's not here yet. So we're and still so, at 20 some odd thousand for containers yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> especially, especially over winter, because there's a, uh, there's a rush to get things out before lunar new year. Mm-hmm. And so there's a premium for, from October no, uh, and December. It's just a huge premium to get anything out. Mm-hmm. So then you, you start, start stacking on all these factors, right? That even make them higher. We actually had a, a project that was ready. Um, it's an unannounced game that's it's it's done, and the factory's holding it because they were like, "Well, it's thirty two thousand dollars a container right now." Is your quote? And I was like, <laughs> "That just destroys the, the the line on it." So just hold it, um, and then we're we're crossing our fingers that after they come back from Lunar New Year, that those prices are going to have mm-hmm. a little bit of relief. Are we kind of through the shipping crisis? Because I mean, if the prices are the same, then it sounds like shipping crisis. Uh, but we're not like it's so it's been a year of this. Well, so we talked about the, sh- the container crisis, and I think that has been assuaged a little bit. 
But what the, the reason why prices are still high is because we've proven to shipping companies that will pay them. <laughs> so part of that is capitalism. Um, the other part of the shipping crisis that is affecting uh, release dates and delays and all of these things um, is the dock worker uh, working conditions and their labor shortages and the strikes and all of that. Mm. Okay. Which is a common theme that we've seen in 2021. Um, workers not satisfied with their their conditions or their wages, whatever, and protesting on that. Unfortunately, it is affecting our industry and others, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of what has contributed to the buildup in the LA ports. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So the other thing too, I mean, one of the, the big problems we had, I'd say probably Daniel, like, like a year ago, is that the availability, kind of what we were talking about earlier, wasn't there. Like, hey, we need three containers. Like, well, we can get you one. Now we're seeing we can get the containers, but the prices are still high. So mm-hmm. uh, everything I hear from our partners say that they expect some sort of break in the summer. They're, so we're looking to summer. So we're, you know, four, six months away from hopefully some sort of relief uh, on that. We'll see. You mentioned before that that's capitalism. I mean, I've, I've knowing my kind of layman stuff, uh, there was some profiteering in there too. You know, there was some like, okay, there's not a lot of shipping containers and they just made bank. And like you said before, if they will, if someone's willing to pay, it's like, okay, boom, 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 boom. And, you know, it's like, okay, well, we could give it to this person, but then this person's coming in. And like, I think there was a little bit of, uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know a lot about this stuff, but like, is that kind of a fair read of it? That there, it's not just like the free market working, that there's a little bit of a consolidation happening in the shipping industry. That's just like, okay, how much can we have? I can, we can charge at any price and people will pay. I'm sure (laughs) to to put it shortly. (laughs) I heard a few stories of, of of some stuff that sounded very mafia like, you know, where it's Mm -hmm. like, Oh, yours is you you would pay 28. Well, this guy will pay 30 and that company will pay 31. And so there was almost Mm -hmm. like an open bid system. If you want on the spot, you got to pay it. Luckily, I think we're again, fingers crossed. uh, I think we're through that That part part of of this and we're just on the, hopefully what is the, the tail end of landing this plane. Let's get out of this thing. Yeah. <laughs> because it is affecting all of our prices and not just Kickstarters, you know, all MSRPs are going up because mm-hmm. when anything drives our cogs up, that's a multiplier that is what sets our MSRPs mm-hmm. and the entire business is run off that MSRP model. And so, you know, uh, it, it behooves all of us for these prices to come down because it's not it's not companies like, uh, you know, we'll see the comments of like, oh, it's just that COVID excuse again. Here they right. are with this. this. It's like, God, team, this is these things push all of those prices up and there is nothing we can do about it because the math just doesn't work if, if we don't. Right. Yeah. Uh, actually, um, I just wanted to get back to because you had pointed to your head about to subsidize it. Mm. Right. So uh, talk about I, I, it's again, it's, it's wonky. Right. But this is what we're here for. Explain like what the what that siege little gear turning was in terms of subsidizing uh, shipping in particular and how you kind of reach into past profits to get to, you know, kind of, I don't know, uh, get the word out. It's like, OK, ship, our shipping is not that bad. So like tell, talk a little bit about uh, that part. Sure. Uh, so before I dive into subsidized shipping on our website. I'll remind everyone about the kind of three paths to buying a game. We sell to distributors who sell to game stores who sell to the end consumer. We also sell to game stores 
who sell to consumers. And then on our website, we sell directly to consumers. Now, each one of those three paths will have a different price that we sell it to, a different profit margin, Mm -hmm. right? Because a distributor needs to have a large enough piece of the pie to give it to the game stores, to give it to the the end consumer. So when we sell to the distributor, our slice of the pie is, is smallest because there's so many more steps it has to go through. When we sell direct on our website, there's no middle person, right? It's our fan and us, and we sell it at full MSRP. So we do have that wiggle room that otherwise would have been spent spent right on the on the distributor's slice of the pie. Mm-hmm. So we can use that to a certain degree to subsidize shipping. Mm-hmm. So let's say the actual shipping that FedEx charges us is $17 for a package. For one, for one machi coro, that's half the price of the game. We know consumers do not want to pay that. They do not see mm-hmm. the value, <laughs> especially mm-hmm. when Amazon is right there or they can go to their game store. So we will let's just say of the $17 in shipping, we'll cover seven, $7 and we'll just advertise that shipping is $10 or we'll do a free shipping threshold at over a certain amount. That's because our, mar- mar- our margin is better. So we can eat that. Yeah, and Danny, Danny hit the, the nail on the head there in the middle. Uh, Amazon has ruined all value perception of shipping and there is nothing we can do about it. So- mm-hmm. When we say like we would prefer not to have to subsidize shipping, it that should that should be a pass through cost for us. It should just be like for everyone. It should just be like, hey, shipping a thing from here to here costs seventeen dollars. So if you want the thing, that's what you have to pay. But Amazon Amazon has ruined that. So on our end, especially on Kickstarters where we're making big box games that are heavy and could take $30, $40 to ship, people see that. They will, and you know, Amazon will ship you a freaking couch for, for prime <laughs> shipping, you know? So they're like giant tires. <laughs> there's no empathy for how big your game box is or how much mm-hmm. it weighs. Or, you know, when Isaac shipped Gloomhaven that one time for free, that's like the oh. one thing that all backers will always bring up. Be like, well, if Gloomhaven can do it for free, wow, he ruined once. everything. <laughs> he did it he once. He ruined it. <laughs> Um, and uh and and when you but though when you look at it and you're like okay uh it's going to be 31 dollars you know that's my quote from qml to get it from their fulfillment center to your door uh i already know if i've got a hundred dollar game what the you know the backer is going to look at that as a 131 dollar investment they don't look at it separately it's all lumped together so we end up having to try to subsidize as much as we can within the margins that we have and still try to hit a 30% profit margin if we can, right? Mm. Like, because when you get, start getting below that, that's when it's like, is this project even really worth doing? If I'm only going to make 12% profit, I can't feed my employees. I can't run my business off of that. So now that runs everything. That 30% is good. Everything, health insurance and all the employee stuff yeah. and travel. And people yeah. aren't taking 30% of a million dollar Kickstarter and going, Whoosh. Yeah, three hundred thousand in my pocket. It's time to party. No, it's 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 all reinvested back into the company. Right. Uh, I, I've said this many times. Nobody in uh, board games is driving Lambos. We aren't video games. We don't have fifteen hundred percent profit margin type things. Board games is a very niche and tight margin industry, and so this is why I think you're seeing so many people and so many companies struggle and having to raise their prices on things 
Mm -hmm. uh, over the last two years because something like this really hurts us more than it does video games and and Mm -hmm. other industries. If if you don't mind, I'm going to jump in and talk about raising prices. Yeah, Um, that's the next topic. Absolutely. Okay, perfect. (laughs) We've Um, set the scene. Like, I mean, this is what happened, right? I mean, the shipping stuff, and and we could talk a little about like materials and everything. But there's all like, um, you know, the the containers and the the storage and the you know subsidizing shipping and you know the COGs kind of like being really really low, so you have to kind of make it up somewhere. Like all that is the brew, and I'm sure we could keep on going on that. But like at the end of the day, like you know, I'm paying. Uh, I think I saw um, pandemic was like 60 bucks. He used to look at about 40, 45. Uh, you know, I, I saw um, a copy of Ticket to Ride for 70, mm-hmm. you know, MSRP or something or 699 or whatever it is. I mean, and I know that's as with the stuff we can get to that, you know, kind of down the road, but like, it's not like they're the only ones. I mean, they, everyone, like, like it is just, you know, so talk a little about that rising prices and like how much they've risen, how much you, uh, what's the calculation that goes into that, all that stuff. So, Asvide publicly raised their prices by whatever, five to $10, depending on the title, whatever it amounted to be. Um, I completely understand why they did that <laughs> because these shipping shortages don't, af- don't just affect our new releases. It affects the reprints of our existing products that we, that we have that have a, an established MSRP. So each company had to make this decision separately and approach it a different way according to how they expected their customers, both fans, but then the game stores and the distributors, how they would react as well. Um, What we've done at Panda is not raise prices on our existing titles because they've been at a certain price for so long. And we've seen success with that. So we're worried, right, if we increase Machi Koro by $10, Maybe we can get away with five at that point. What does it matter? Right. We kept all of our existing titles the same, including titles that we'd announced in 2021 as we were feeling the long-term negative effects of, of very expensive containers. Um, but moving forward for games we haven't announced, internally, as we're determining the MSRP, uh, we built in a buffer. So if something bad happens, we have to pay X more than we expect, why don't we just make the MSRP $5 more than mm. what we would have normally in the before times have, have set it at. So you kind of put in like stabilizers, almost like you have internal like triggers. It's like, okay, okay, we've, this is what the layout is. Uh, we've determined that we're not gonna go the Asmodee route. We're gonna keep things going, but like we have triggers. Like if, if this happens, we're gonna do this. And if that's what we do this, that's all like mapped out for, you, for y'all. Mm-hmm. Like on this calendar I have on my wall, these little sticky notes that you can kind of see sticking out are our upcoming releases. So we typically announce two months before release. So by that time we've printed the game, it's probably hopefully on a boat. So we can kind of gauge those, those costs. And when we make the announcement, we know if we need that buffer or not. Um, but we, we decide ahead of time what that will be. And if we think the other decision is if we think if we include that buffer, will it, hinder the success of the game like will it be too expensive for the target market or not mm. so it, it's all a like a lick your finger stick in the wind type of decision <laughs> as danny was talking through that it, a lot of the things in my head are like you know we, we we take the cog like we were talking about earlier the the cost of the good and it's usually a five to six x multiplier is usually what will land you at what the msrp needs to be and so 
the ocean freight, the actual costs from the manufacturer, our molds, production, art, all those things start to add into that. And uh, over the last two years, we've definitely seen even, yes, yeah, so obviously we've talked about ocean freight, but also the cost at, from the factory, from the manufacturer has gone up substantially as well because papers went up, um, plastics went up, everything's went up. And so when you're like, at the end of the day, when you sit down with your P&L and you're like, uh, like Danny was saying, this game is targeted at this audience and their value perception is a ticket to ride should be $50. That's just mm-hmm. built into their head. And then when they go to the shelf and they see it at 70, they go, mm, I don't feel good. Don't like mm-hmm. that. And, and you're always trying to overcome that, but we don't have a choice, right? Because those, that multiplier is a hard multiplier because that multiplier has to service all three of those chains that Danny laid out earlier with distro being the worst one for us margin wise, but it's also the biggest volume one usually. Mm -hmm. So we don't, you don't really have a choice. You have to, you have to go into distro. You have to play that margin game. And so then you have to set your MSRP so that your product is viable in that lane. If Mm -hmm. not, you won't, be in business very long. And mm-hmm. so I think we're going to see, um, you know, we're going to see some, uh, some constriction of companies. We're going to see um, some games go up in prices and we're going to see people probably make less games or even swing to not making big box games. Right. Because that's a big mm-hmm. thing. Like um, Wonderland's war, I could only get about 22 to 2,300 games in a 40 foot container. Cause it was so big. Mm. Right. Whereas if I'm making, uh, you know, Guditama in this little box right here, we can get 25,000 of these in a 40 foot container. So it's with, with things, I think you're going to see people really start to shift or they've probably already have at this Mm -hmm. point. um, Some of the ways that they're, they're coming to market. Yeah. I mean, I think that since we're at, you know, the start in 2020, the 2021 was a shipping crisis and now we're here at 2022. I feel like, so a bunch of stuff happened and, like games were still released and, you know, so we still were able to fill out our top tens for 2021 <laughs> and we still have announcements of new titles. You know, we just, we spent the first part of the thing talking about Kickstarters and releases and that kind of thing. Like it's from the consumer perspective, we may be thinking, okay, that wasn't bad. You know, we were kind of predicted gloom and doom, but that wasn't bad. Like a lot, there weren't a lot of companies that folded. Like we had mm-hmm. a couple of noteworthy ones and it's out. And uh, I think it was uh tasty mineral, um, uh, something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. But, it, you know, they asked about that. It's like, okay, they were kind of, you know, uh, kind of strung out on dead. And all kind of, it was like special circumstances in that, that particular case. Uh, a lot of companies seem to weather the storm. So from a consumer perspective, not bad, right? <laughs> a lot of, and like, you know, like um, Panda is not the only uh, company that did not, you know, to raise their prices. You know, there's a lot of companies that are like, okay, we're going to keep it for now. Asmodee being the greedy blimp or whatever our perception is, like they're going to jump on higher prices, but like a lot of other companies kind of didn't. So like, what's the big deal kind of thing? Are we still in those choppy waters or is it one of those things where like behind the scenes, a bunch of companies were like, whoa. <laughs> it was definitely behind the scenes a lot of whoa, uh, for sure. It was obviously very tumultuous for, for all of us because, you know, there's, there's just a lot of uncertainty. But I think you can go back and look at Valorant Villainy 2 for us, right? The Ludwig Labyrinth uh, campaign. We did straight pass through. We didn't, we weren't able to subsidize any of the shipping costs. 
and we get a lot of blowback. People were like, $42 for shipping. Oh my God. You know, or uh, we offered a play mat and they're like $17 to ship a play mat. We're like, yeah, that's how much it costs to ship a play mat. Like, I'm sorry. Like if you want it, get it. If not, we, we can't take a loss to sell you the product. So I'm sorry, but that's what it is. And uh, it was a, uh, you know, people were in the comments, uh, you know, they dropped some add-ons because they were like, well, I was going to get this and this add-on, mm-hmm. but now I need to spend that money on paying for my VAT. Uh, and, you know, that's another thing. The VAT laws are now enforced more strictly and more um, in place. And so it, I don't think it was any necessarily people were dodging them before. It is, they were in, they're enforced differently now. And mm-hmm. there is there is no wiggle room. There is no uh, uh, <laughs> there's no wiggle room. You pay, <laughs> period. Um, and mm-hmm. Or, or your stuff can be seized, right? It can be seized at the port. And then you pay, like Danny was saying, then you pay fees because they had to seize it, you know, and then they hold it. So uh, it's it's a bit of a mess, but it's we did see some, some flailing, even from backers and, and mm-hmm. from people saying, I don't want to pay these prices or I can't afford to keep coming to these Kickstarters. I can't. And I think you're, we're also seeing, we're seeing the volume of Kickstarter spend come way down. Yeah. across the board that in, we that we are saying yes in number of in number of backers and in the amount that they're spending because mm-hmm. all of these costs uh are, are really adding up for everybody's budget because you know you still only have the same amount of money to spend as you have to spend mm-hmm. but we'll get to kickstarter next uh, i wanted to send a, save a whole thing because there's so much happening with crowdfunding all that kind of stuff i guess like uh you know taking us home i mean like i said before uh, it seemed like a lot of companies weathered the storm, like even the smaller companies, even if they didn't, you know, they delayed their project by nine months or whatever it is. I mean, it seemed like that. Is that a misperception on my part or did a lot or was there, was there more resilience then? I just Maybe think, what seeing, I think, I think it's a longer tail. So okay. you say right now you think they've made it, but like, I think people are really good at taking credit or getting, you know, going and getting loans mm-hmm. because they're like, oh, this mm-hmm. is going to get better next year. And a lot of this is going to be a long tail effect that I think over the next 12 to 16 months, you'll still, you'll hear of more companies going out of business or being uh, bought up by another company who's mm-hmm. not, you know, uh, is in a better position so they can um, team up, that sort of thing. Yeah, I agree with James. Like w- just recently, we've seen a couple of company acquisitions greater than, uh, mm-hmm. Greater than games being acquired by Flat River. Um, I think a lot of small companies, even medium and large companies, have gotten to have had to become creative. So Amari from Colorway Game Labs, he has three games that are in production. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just did the the Kickstarter for Critical Care, and he he posted an update recently describing how he's trying to coordinate the shipments of all three of those games into the same container, even though the campaigns were a year, months apart, Mm -hmm. um, just to save costs because they're so astronomically high. (laughs) Uh, Poor Omari. I got that update and I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh man, he must be getting it. (laughs) I know. (laughs) That does not sound like a happy man (laughs) doing that update. You you probably want to talk about this in the Kickstarter section, but it's, you know, I think everybody, a lot of backers take the very best experience that they've had from company X, right? And then they apply that across the board. But Kickstarter was always about creators having different paths to how they make the things that they make. So what Omari is trying to do 
should be totally fine. But then you'll have people that are in there screaming that you're not, you're not doing it the way that you're supposed to do. What is that? What is that supposed to be way? Right? Like if you get the thing that you paid for, then you crowdfunded. Mm -hmm. Okay. uh, That'll tantalize us for the next section. (laughs) I know (laughs) James is ready to go. <laughs> and Danny too, you had your experiences. Well, we'll absolutely get into those experiences mm-hmm. which you shared on Twitter as well. Uh, so we'll wrap up this part. Uh, so just in terms of the, so I hope that people come away with an understanding of shipping. Uh, I learned something about the subsidy of shipping, mm-hmm. like you know the magic number, like okay, nine ninety nine, like no, like I'm trying to ship games, you know, because I trade them and everything. It's like okay, I've never paid nine ninety nine for anything, <laughs> like even mm-hmm. like the tiniest game. So it's like oh, that's what's happening, and so that capacity to do that is disappearing. Uh, there's a, there is a flux when it comes to pricing. Like, like some companies are raising it, some companies are not. Some companies have to raise it. There's there's a whole bunch of uncertainty. But what that ultimately means is that we could still see those that long tail struggle. Well, not who knows. So yeah, we're still I think, in the I think, middle. I think something for if you're listening to this to take away is board game companies don't have huge profit margins. And if we're subsidizing or our costs are going up, that is eating into the profit margin. So if you want your favorite companies to be able to be profitable so that they can keep making your favorite games, you need to support them. And the Mm -hmm. best way to support them, like Danny said earlier, is if you can, again, I understand not everybody can do this, but if you have the resources, buy direct from the company. It's, mm. It really does help. That's where they sell the best profit margin game. I'm not telling you to skip the FLGS all the time, but if you can drop, if you can go grab a game from Pandasaurus, right? You don't have to buy all of their games uh, through their website, but if you can grab one here and there, it really does help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just grab an extra copy of The Mind on your way out. $13. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I did that actually. I was like, "Oh, I, I need the mind." I was like, "Okay, I'll take that." There you go. <laughs> it's not a convention. It's like the best, the best place for it. It's like you have all these games, and it's like, "Okay, I'll take that." Uh, okay, so thank you very much, uh, Danny Lowe, James Hudson. Uh, we will get to come back for part two uh, in a little bit, uh, talking about specifically crowdfunding, which I'm sure we're wrapped up for. Uh, but this was a really great education. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for joining us again for the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. Also, join us for games and discussion on our Discord channel. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash one stop. Or leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and we'll see you next week for another Top 5 list.